Welcome, welcome to uh, No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, here for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And the confusion stops here. Last week, we talked about the gospel for the 21st Sunday of Ordinary Time in year A, which, uh, by happy coincidence, was the readings on the day of my son Sean's confirmations. So it was a week ago Sunday. And, you know, we talked about uh, what a happy coincidence it was for the gospel to be from Matthew 16, where Jesus gives Peter the keys to the kingdom. And we pointed out Peter's special relationship with the third person of the Holy Trinity, with God the Holy Spirit, and how that ties into to confirmation. We talked about living a sacramental life. And we went over all the sacraments but one. And so later on today, we're going to be talking about the most blessed sacrament, the sacrament wherein we receive the gift of, or the grace of God, and also Christ himself, the, the Holy Eucharist. Uh, also, there's some other points about the readings from that 21st Sunday in Ordinary Time that relate to the papacy today. Maybe some things that, uh, that you're not familiar with, and uh, I think one thing at least that is particularly important for us today. So we're going to talk about that also. But first, uh, this last month of August was, uh, or saw, I should say, the feast day of my favorite saint. And so for the last couple of weeks, we have focused at least part of the program on the Dr. Mellifluous St. Bernard of Clairvaux. And I shared one of his quotes with you, one of, the, uh, one of my favorites, which is where he said, everything I know about the science of the scriptures I learned in the woods and fields. In other words, he would go and contemplate revelation, contemplate God's word in a, a natural solitude. He said, the beaches and the oaks were my only masters. Well, a few days ago, I ran across an article by a Dr. Matthew Sleeth, M.D., called Four Important Spiritual Lessons from Trees in the Bible. And I thought it was too much of a coincidence not to share it with you. So, uh, as always, the link to the original article will be in the show notes. But Dr. Sleeth brings up some interesting points. First off, that um, uh, trees make life possible. Trees give us oxygen. They give us fruit and shade and, and beauty and numerous other gifts. And he also points out, and I did not know this, he points out that other than people, trees are mentioned more than any other creatures in the Bible. And that was very interesting uh, that uh, there's more, more about trees than anything except human beings. And uh, he says, there is a tree on the first page of Genesis and the last page of Revelation. The first psalm exhorts believers to be like trees. And I also found it interesting that he said every major biblical character and every major theological event also has a tree marking the spot. But he goes on to say that there are four important spiritual lessons that we can learn from trees that God planted in Scripture, pun intended. Namely, number one, that trees turn toward the light. Number two, they put down roots. Number three, they bring forth fruit. And number four, trees inspire us to think long term. So taking them one at a time, trees turn toward the light. I remember back in elementary school, I don't know, I must have been the third, second or third grade, and uh, we took a couple of those paper coffee cups. You remember the old paper coffee cups had the little built-in handle on them, you know, little perforated handle. And we took a couple of those, just back in the days before styrofoam, 
took those cups, and we filled them with potting soil and, and uh, planted some seeds in them. And then teacher put one on the windowsill and took the other one and put it into a cupboard in the back of the classroom. And every day we'd check on them, you know, we'd water them. And of course, for the longest time, nothing happened. And then one day the uh, little plants sprouted out of the earth. And when they first sprouted out of the uh, soil, they looked the same. But very quickly, we saw a difference. The one in the windowsill grew tall and straight and green and turned toward the sun. And the one in the closet was, you know, pale and small and grew in a weird stunted shape because it didn't know know where to grow. And the point is that that plants and trees included grow towards the sun's uh, sunlight in a process called phototropism, which is from the Greek for light and to turn. So turn to the light. And just as trees naturally turn to the light of the sun, so it is with us that we grow spiritually strong when we turn to the light of Christ, Christ who said, I am the light of the world. Number two, trees put down roots. Now, besides light, trees need what? They need water. And the very first psalm describes uh, godly people as being like trees planted by rivers of water or by living water who meditate on the law of the Lord night and day. So when we are daily meditating on God's law, uh, that is on his word in the scriptures, and I think especially when we're praying the liturgy of the hours at certain times all throughout the day, or we practice Lectio Divina, we're like trees by a river in that we are setting down these deep roots and drinking up that life-giving water. And you do that long enough and you become like a mature tree that, that has deep roots and therefore it can stand the, the heat and the cold and the drought. And, and we are, are better able, when we de- uh, sink our roots deep into the Word of God, to weather the trials and tribulations and spiritual dryness in our own lives. You know, I've often mentioned that uh, prior to the invention of the Codex, you know, the modern book with uh, pages all uh, bound together, um, uh, you know, in a single volume, the books of the Bible were originally copied down on these long scrolls of papyrus and then rolled up on on wooden rods that, uh, you know, had a handle on them. So if somebody in the first century actually had all of the books of the Bible, it would look like a wallpaper shop, essentially. Now, I was interested to learn that in the Old Testament, you know, the Jews, uh, the chosen people, called the handles on the scrolls, they called them Etz Chaim, which is the Hebrew for tree of life. Now, that's interesting. And I I went to Proverbs 3.18. It says, wisdom is a life-giving tree the source of happiness for all who hold on to her. And so it was a source of joy for them to read God's word, to experience his wisdom while holding onto the handles of those scrolls, hence the Etz Chaim. Okay, uh, trees also bring forth fruit. When I was growing up here in Glendora, California, we had several fruit trees, and every year, There would be an abundance of plums and apricots and especially avocados. In fact, that avocado tree is still bearing fruit today, all these many years later. Uh, But but what good is a fruit tree if it never bears any fruit? Okay, to ask that question is to answer it. And it's the same with people. Jesus says that we'll be known by the fruit that we produce. 
It's Matthew 7, 16 through 20. By, your fruit, by their fruits you will know them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Just so, every good tree bears good fruit, and a rotten tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a rotten tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So, by their fruits, you will know them. And we don't just produce such uh, outward fruits, but inward fruit as well. And what, what's inward fruit? Well, it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit, working on our, our spiritual faculties, working on the intellect and the will, and conforming us ever more closely to the image of Christ. You know, we talked last week in, in the context of my son's confirmation, we talked about the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are enumerated in Isaiah chapter 11. But there's also the fruits of the Spirit, and St. Paul talks about it in the letter to the Galatians. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In fact, Jesus chose you for the very purpose of bearing fruit. John fifteen sixteen says, You did not choose me, I chose you, and appointed you to go and bear much fruit, the kind of fruit that endures. And finally, trees uh, encourage us to think long-term. You know, our lives on earth are short, but not so for the trees. You know, I used to work sometimes uh, up in the Fresno Visalia area, up in the central California, and I would stay at the Paul Bunyan Motor Lodge in beautiful Porterville, California. And out in front of the hotel, they had this uh, huge cross-section from a giant redwood tree. And on the rings of the tree, of course, the rings of the tree is how you tell how old it is, uh, they had numbers. And then there was a little chart that corresponded to them. And you could see the various historical events that took place at that time in the life of this tree. And so on the outside, you've got, you know, the moon landing and World War II and the Great Depression. And you go back and it's like the Civil War and the American Revolution or the French Revolution. And then further back to, you know, the Protestant Reformation and the Crusades and the fall of Rome and all the way back to the life of Christ. You know, you think about it. There are trees that are alive today that were alive when God led the chosen people out of Egypt, when Moses came down from Sinai with the Ten Commandments. And uh, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He has made everything beautiful and appropriate in its time. He has also planted eternity in the human heart. Yet man cannot grasp what God has done from beginning to end. So he's placed in us this sense of divine purpose, this mysterious longing of heart, which nothing under the sun can satisfy except God. And even though we have eternity in our hearts, we can't fully comprehend his plan, you know, from beginning to end. Consequently, we often base our decisions on the short term. But what would things be like if our first thought was, you know, what does this mean in light of eternity? Or if we took seriously our role as stewards of our gifts, we're responsible for future generations. So I advise you, follow the uh, lead of St. Bernard of Clairvaux and get your Bible, your breviary, go under a shady tree, turn toward the light, and uh, see what happens. Uh, right now, I'm going to take a quick one, and we shall return. Lots more no-nonsense Catholic right after this. Stay with us.
Help the Helpless, a Minnesota St. Paul nonprofit organization chaired by Father of Tear and volunteers, is humbly asking you for your kind support to help the poor and the handicapped children in India and Ecuador. Through financial support from the help of the helpless benefactors, the children are provided with clothing, food, education, shelter, and the teachings of the Catholic Church. The mission is to help children thrive and become self-sufficient young adults leading productive lives. We also provide aid to poor families in Ecuador with food baskets, medicines, medical assistance, and help with funeral needs for the deceased. The work in India is done by Father Antonio's organization, St. Mary's. In Ecuador, the work is being done by the Servant Sisters of the Home of Mother. You can call us at 877-762-8857. To learn more, please visit our website, www.helpthehelpless.org. God bless you. Join VMPR live on YouTube September 12, 2020 for our latest free conference, The Ultimate Challenge. This exclusive virtual event will feature a brand new talk from Jesse Romero, How Apologetics Brought Me Back to Faith, plus never-before-broadcast video presentations from Dr. Scott Hahn, Father Mitch Pacwa, and the late, great Father Benedict Groeschel. Go to vmpr.org to register now and get ready to face the ultimate challenge. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Glad to have you with us. I mentioned last week uh, in the readings... Um, for it now, it's now uh, a couple Sundays ago, a week ago Sunday, the 21st Sunday in Ordinary Time, um, uh, that there was an Old Testament reading and a New Testament reading that relate to the gospel. And that's the way it's supposed to work, you know, the way that the, uh, the um, cycle of readings was set up for the Novus Ordo Mise was the idea that you'd have in the Old Testament reading, you'd have the the Old Testament type or fulfillment or a type of foreshadowing that's fulfilled in the gospel. And then in the New Testament reading in between, you would have some kind of relevant commentary. Doesn't always work out perfectly, but, but it worked out really well for the 21st Sunday in ordinary time where the gospel is from Matthew 16, where Jesus gives Peter the keys to the kingdom. And the Old Testament reading, the first reading, really sets up the type of the papacy that's fulfilled in the gospel. It's from Isaiah 22, verses 19 through 23. Thus says the Lord to Shebna, master of the palace, I will thrust you from your office and pull you down from your station. On that day I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and gird him with your sash and give over to him your authority. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place the key of the house of David on Eliakim's shoulder 
When he opens, no one shall shut. When he shuts, no one shall open. I will fix him like a peg in a sure spot to be a place of honor for his family. Now, this is the same kind of language that Jesus uses when he makes Peter, uh, when he gives him the keys to the kingdom and the power to bind and loose. So, you know, just as the prime minister of the Davidic kingdom uh, wields, you know, David's authority, the king's authority, the Pope will yield, wield, sorry, rented lips, <laughs> the Pope will wield the authority of the king of kings. And the prime minister is like a father to the people of Jerusalem. The Pope is the holy father to Christians all around the world. Eliakim is uh, meant to be a, a peg in a sure spot. It's, it's referenced like a tent pole holding up the house of David, whereas Simon Peter is the rock foundation upon which Christ will build his church. Uh, so all those parallels are there. Also, we see that there's, you know, just as there's succession in the line of prime ministers of the kingdom of David, there's also going to be succession in the prime ministry of God's kingdom on earth, which is to say the papacy. And that simply means that just as the key of the house of David passes from Shebna to Eliakim, the keys of God's kingdom that Jesus gives to Peter will pass to his successors, the popes. But there's another foreshadowing here that virtually no one ever talks about. Shebna is a poor prime minister. God is replacing him. And his downfall is a matter of divine providence. You know, it's been said that in, in a monarchy, divine providence may at any time put on the throne an incompetent or an imbecile or a villain. As the old saying goes, sometimes the emperor is Marcus Aurelius, but sometimes the emperor is Nero. And the same holds true for prime ministers. Notice that the prophet says, whatever the human political mechanism at play here, it's ultimately God who will pull Shebna down from the station, his station, and God who will give the key to the house of David over to Eliakim. It's like when the cardinals uh, elect the pope. They, you know, pray for the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and people commonly say, you know, that the Holy Spirit chose so-and-so to be pope because of that. But if this is the case, you know, in, in the prophet Isaiah, and it is, why was Shebna allowed to become prime minister in the first place if he wasn't worthy? Why did the church elect corrupt or, or immoral popes during the, the medieval times of the Renaissance? Well, you know, we see in context that Shebna was, you know, he was just as materialistic as the rest of the people of Jerusalem. And he was probably among those who were advocating an alliance with foreign powers directly against the counsel of uh, the prophet Isaiah. So Shebna should lose his office to Eliakim. Unfortunately, Eliakim too would fall, and it would not come as a surprise. You look at the very next verse, after it says of Eliakim, I will fix him like a peg in a sure spot to be a place of honor for his family. It goes on to say, on him shall hang all the glory of his ancestral house, descendants and offspring, all the little dishes from bowls to jugs. I mean, that seems like a weird uh, comparison, uh, but it suggests how fragile this merely human dynasty is, like pottery hanging on a wall. And we see why in verse 25, it goes on to say, On that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg fixed in a firm place shall give way, break off and fall, and the weight that hung on it shall be done away with. 
or I got another uh, translation says, everything that was hanging on it will be destroyed for the Lord has spoken. So God first allows Shebna to hold the office, even though he's not worthy, and then replaces him with Eliakim, knowing that he too is going to ultimately fail in his responsibilities to the kingdom. And just as Jesus chooses Peter in Matthew 16, and then just a few verses later calls him Satan. He chooses Peter knowing he's going to deny him three times. Okay, so now if this can be true of, you know, certain prime ministers of the house of David, that they were not worthy of the office, then it can be true of certain successors of Peter as well. But this begs the question, why? Why does God allow it? Well, the liturgy of the 21st Sunday of Ordinary Time itself supplies the answer in the New Testament reading. It's from Romans 11, 33-36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How inscrutable are his judgments. How unsearchable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given the Lord anything that he may be repaid? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. In other words, nobody fully understands the mind of God. Nobody can see the big picture the way God does. God has never needed anyone's counsel. His ways are unsearchable because he alone possesses absolute power and wisdom. See, this language of St. Paul echoes the language of Isaiah and also of Jeremiah, the prophets, who remind us that God doesn't owe us anything, any of us. Nobody has ever given him anything that that he's indebted to them for. Uh, On the contrary, we are utterly dependent upon him. God is the source of all things, including our very selves. He sustains and rules the universe and works out all things for his greater glory, and we can do no better than to praise him for it. And that is why God is worthy of all praise and all thanksgiving, regardless of the situation in the church or the world, regardless of the uh, circumstances of your personal life, and regardless of the current occupant of the chair of Peter. And that's no nonsense. Okay, last week we also spoke about living a sacramental life. And we talked about the importance of all the sacraments, but we, uh, we actually ran out of time <clears throat> before we got around to addressing the most blessed sacrament, the Holy Eucharist. The Holy Eucharist is unique among the sacraments because only in Holy Communion do we receive, yes, the, the grace of God, the grace of Christ, but also Christ himself, body, blood, soul, and divinity under the appearance of bread and wine. The Church calls the Eucharist the source and summit of the Christian life because Jesus is present in the Eucharist and he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It's Jesus himself who said, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the world. And how is he with us? He's with us, you know, spiritually through his grace uh, in many ways and through all of the sacraments and through prayer. But he's physically present, body, blood, soul, and divinity 
in the Blessed Sacraments in all the tabernacles of the world. And as long as the, the, the physical appearance of the, the species remains, he remains physically in you when you receive Holy Communion. He's present in the church until the end of the time through the Blessed Sacrament. He gave us the Holy Eucharist at the Last Supper and commanded that the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass would continue for all time, the sacrifice on the cross, until he comes again. And in the Holy Mass, he gives to the Church a memorial of his death and resurrection, which is also a true sacrifice because it makes truly present for us, sacramentally, his once and for all sacrifice on Calvary. Through the hands of the priest, Christ's sacrifice on the cross is offered in an unbloody way. The priest, by the sacred power he receives from Jesus, acting in his person, offers the holy sacrifice of the Mass to God the Father in the name of all people. So Christ is actually present at Holy Mass, according to the general instruction of the Roman Missal. Christ is present at Mass in four ways. In the person of the priest, right? The priest through um, the grace of his ordination acts in persona Christi. He's present in the word when it is proclaimed. He is present in the congregation. Specifically, it says, when we pray or sing, right? During that active participation in the liturgy, Christ is there present. As he said, wherever two or three of you are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of you. And finally, of course, he is uh, present most especially in the Blessed Sacrament. So he's present in the Eucharist to be our sacrifice, to be our food, our companion who nourishes and strengthens us with his body and blood. He comes to unite us with himself and with all the other members of the Church. Catholics believe, okay, and I, maybe I should say good Catholics, <laughs> well-catechized Catholics, maybe go out on a limb and say true Catholics, believe in the doctrine of the real presence of Jesus Christ, true God and true man, that he's substantially present in the Eucharist under the appearance of bread and wine. Can't fully understand it because it's above human reason. It is a supernatural mystery and it requires supernatural faith. And we see that in the scriptures. In John chapter 6, when Jesus proclaims to his followers, Amen, Amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Well, many of the disciples stopped following him because they couldn't understand. And we have a moment that's a bookend when, when Jesus asked the apostles, uh, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they gave him a, a variety of popular but incorrect answers. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, this situation in John 6 is a similar test of faith. All of the people, all but the apostles, leave because the teaching on the real presence is too hard. But what about the apostles? And what about you and me? We'll answer that question when we come back in just a couple of minutes <clears throat> with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm Matthew Arnold. Great to have you along with us. Stay tuned because we'll be back with that and lots more, including Catholicism and fundamentalism.
Hi, this is Jesse Romero from the Terry and Jesse Show, also from Jesus 911. Let's face it, we all need to use the internet, but we need screen accountability. Why? Pornography is a huge problem, especially on the internet. And every time we tap into the internet, we get bombarded with images and temptations that degrade our humanity. So we need Covenant Eye to block these pornographic sites and advertisements from infiltrating our lives. Covenant Eyes helps us take custody of our eyes and custody of our intellect. So I recommend you go to CovenantEyes.com and type in the promo code, the NPR, to support the network. Protect yourself and your family from the eminent threats on the Internet. www.CovenantEyes.com Code VMPR Live Porn Free. Thank you for listening to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thank you. God bless you. Keep the faith. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And here's an easy way to support us by going to smile.amazon.com and type in Catholic Resource Center or Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And when you log in your Amazon account and you purchase products, a portion of it will go right back in supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And it doesn't cost you a dime. I want to thank you ahead of time because that supports us year-round. May God bless you and your family. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back. Talking about um, Matthew 16 and how the um, Jesus asked the 12, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now that has a bookend at the end of John chapter 6. Because as, as I was saying, um, all of the uh, people, they can't, they can't uh, handle the teaching on the real presence. It, it, it's too hard for them. And they leave. All but the apostles. And the Bible says, And Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to leave? Once again, he's putting this question to them. Are you going to be like everybody else? And once again, it's Simon Peter who says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. So by reaffirming Christ's identity, St. Peter shows us probably the most important way in which we follow Christ. And that is simply we take Jesus at his word because it is the word of God. He said, my flesh is food indeed. My blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. And we believe it. So living a sacramental life means uh, receiving 
the Eucharist worthily on Sundays and Holy Days and any other day that you might make it to Mass. But receiving worthily is the point, and receiving worthily means being in a state of grace. And, uh, you know, St. Paul warns us sternly in 1 Corinthians 11, he who eats and drinks unworthily, he who eats and drinks without discerning the body of Christ, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Receiving worthily means being in a state of grace, and staying in a state of grace means regular confession. You know, before the COVID scare, I would go to confession every month or more often if I needed the grace, and that was <laughs> frequently. And I, in, in the almost 25 years that I've been Catholic, I have never gone so long without uh, confession as I have during this uh, lockdown. But I have known people, people who consider themselves good Catholics, people who go to church every Sunday, um, who have not been con- to confession in years or decades even. And they say things like, well, you know, I don't, I don't have any mortal sins, or I wouldn't know what to say. And to that, I, I would say that's one of the reasons you should go to confession regularly. Because regular confession requires that you regularly examine your conscience. And it's not just about mortal sin. It's not just, be, just being about, uh, you know, falling from grace and being returned to a state of grace. Because examining your conscience, going to confession regularly, helps you to discover bad habits, even, even just faults, that can be rooted out with the help of God's grace. Thomas Akempis, in The Invitation of Christ, he says, if we could root out but one fault a year, we would soon be perfect. And by the way, celebrating the sacrament of penance in a state of grace gives you an increase of sanctifying grace, which is to say it makes you holier, which is the point that Thomas Akempis is trying to make and is, in fact, the whole point of being Catholic. Now, even uh, in these days, penance and Eucharist remain the foundations of our sacramental life. And even though many of us uh, still have very limited access to the sacraments, you can always be fed from the table of God's Word. USCCB.org, the bishop's website, has the daily readings and even commentary. You can have it sent directly into your email. You know, you just go open your email box in the morning and have it right there. Lots of parishes are streaming daily Mass. And of course, there's always EWTN who was streaming daily Mass to begin with. They're doing it for years. But the way to benefit from those virtual liturgies is, of course, with with the exception of receiving Holy Communion, it means doing the same thing that you should be doing anyhow, which is assisting with attention and reverence and devotion. Pray the prayers. Listen uh, attentively to the readings and to the homily and get a word out, as I like to say. That is, pick one thing, make it your own. Apply it to your life. Keep it in mind. Uh, Remember that it's God's word to you. And of course, you can and should make a spiritual communion. You should be doing that every day anyhow. And in that way, you, uh, especially though, you can share in the graces of the Holy Eucharist consecrated at that Mass that you're watching on the live stream. And of course, don't forget the sacramentals, holy water, scapulars, your crucifix, blessed medals, and so on, uh, especially, of course, the Most Holy Rosary. St. Bernard always emphasized how uh, our good Lord gave us his mother from the Holy Cross. It was, it was Bernard who said, you know, uh, Jesus came to us through Mary, and now he desires that we should go through Mary to get to him. 
And final word on this. At the Last Supper, okay, in the context of having just instituted the Blessed Sacrament, Jesus said, remain in me as I remain in you. Just as a branch cannot bear fruit on its own unless it remains on the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever remains as me and I in him will bear much fruit, because without me you can do nothing. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask for whatever you want and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father loves me, so I also love you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. That's John 15, verses 4 and following. So the, the sacraments are the ordinary channels of God's grace, and they are necessary to keep the life of grace in our souls. And Jesus gives us uh, this grace to make us holy, and especially in the Holy Eucharist, and that is the fruit of the sacramental life, and that is no nonsense. Hey, before we move on, I wanted to remind you that uh, upcoming on the 12th of this month, September 12th, from 9 to 5, that we're going to have a live YouTube virtual conference, virtual video conference, The Ultimate Challenge, which is a series of four great debates with um, Dr. Scott Hahn, with Father Mitch Pacwa, with um, the late, great Father Benedict Groeschel. Uh, and in uh, addition to that, we're going to have a bonus uh, brand new talk from Jesse Romero about the importance of apologetics. It's like how apologetics brought me back to the faith. And it will all be hosted live by a good Mr. Terry Barber, and I imagine they will have a surprise or two for you. You can go to vmpr.org, find out all about it. It's free. Uh, if you want, you can uh, register ahead of time. And uh, for a small donation, you can also um, have then access to those. We'll give you uh, access just to the people that register. We'll be able to go uh, and check those out at their leisure. Okay, you'll have... a. Uh, you will have ongoing access to those talks. It's going to be terrific. I mean, if you haven't seen those, it was recorded some time ago, and um, Scott Hahn especially, this is a very rare debate appearance by Scott. He, um, he did not and does not typically uh, accept invitations to debate on these uh, you know, topics of the faith, but um, he did, and it's one of his best. So by all means, check that out September 12th coming up. Okay, <clears throat> we're talking about a debate with uh, Protestants about various points of the faith. And, of course, that is something that, uh, obviously, Protestants and Catholics, especially uh, uh, fundamentalist Christians and Catholics, do not see eye to eye on everything. And if you, if you doubt me, all you have to do is tune in to uh, Gary Machuda's Hands on Apologetic show Monday through Friday, and uh, yeah, they will prove it to you. And, uh, and this comes from an article. You know, I do my spiritual reading every day. I read the Bible every day. And I'm also always reading books and articles and essays, a lot of it online, um, about the Catholic faith. And I bookmark these things, you know, with the idea that maybe I'll talk about it on the show sometime because it's something that interests me. And very often, I do not have the opportunity to get around to it, especially when I started um, just podcasting once a week instead of every day. 
you know, I've only got that one hour now uh, each week. And so there's never enough time to, to say all the stuff that I want. But I thought it would be well for me to go back over there and say, you know what, uh, let's let's maybe take a step back from the election and from COVID and from, you know, all that stuff and just take a look at some of these things that I thought were significant enough to uh, to bookmark. And I ran across something that I thought was interesting, especially in the context of talking about this upcoming debate. And that is an article that was on Church Pop by a fellow named Brantley Milligan, who is or was one of their editors. And it's called, Where Fundamentalists Are Right, Five Things Catholics Need to Take Seriously Again. And it's on the, uh, again, the the URL, the link will be uh, in the show notes. So if you want to go check out the original article. But it's really interesting because, well, first off, of course, fundamentalist, that word is, is a pejorative today. You never hear fundamentalist used in any kind of positive way. You know, fundamentalists are, are irrational religious extremists. You know, suicide bombers are fundamentalists. Okay. So 100 years ago, though, this term was a badge of honor for conservative Protestants. You know, in the late 18th or late 19th century, rather, and uh, especially the early 20th century, you had really that rise of the historical critical method of Bible study you had within liberal Protestantism a lot of, uh, you know, large figures, pretty influential uh, folks, theologians and pastors and whatnot, who were questioning, even challenging, some of the, the bedrock doctrines of Christianity, the, the inerrancy of Scripture, the bodily resurrection of Christ, for example. I'm going to be Christian and not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And conservative Protestants, there, there was a, a, a backlash, and they called for returning to the fundamentals of the faith, which, of course, uh, gives us that term. And, you know, it's obviously there's a lot of issues where Catholics and fundamentalists would disagree. Um, I mean, just the, the fundamentalism on its face is someplace where we disagree. You can't take you know, the, the Catholic faith can't be reduced to just a certain truths. In fact, a lot of heresies are where you take one truth and treat it like the whole truth. But there are places where we converge. And I think a lot of them are really important. And that was the point of this article, is to Catholics need to take some things seriously that are branded fundamentalism. We're going to talk about what those are when we come back. Lots more no-nonsense Catholic right after this. on apologetics you have entered into virgin most powerful's apologetics dojo where we go wall to wall with defending explaining sharing the faith master apologist carlo brusar carlo welcome to hands-on apologetics hey gary it's great to be back in the dojo my friend master apologist ken hensley welcome to hands-on apologetics good to see you again gary good to be with you michael barber welcome you have entered into the virgin most powerful's apologetics dojo Gary, thanks for having me on. We are chatting with Master Apologist Carl Keating. Gary, it's great to be back with you. Coming into the dojo is our good friend Steve Ray. Thank you, Gary. Good to be here. Tim Staples, welcome to Hands-On Apologetics. Hey, it's great to be with you, Gary. Thanks for having me on. Join many others in Gary Machuda's Apologetics Dojo. We have some of the best Catholic apologists in the nation. 
Streaming live weekdays from 10 to 11 a.m. Pacific. Hands-on apologetics on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. In Luke 7, Jesus said, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven her because she has been shown great love. According to St. John of the Cross, Christians should always remember that the value of their good works is not based on number and excellence. Their value is based on the love for God that prompts them to do the works. May we always be motivated by true love for God and not worry so much about what we do, but why we do it. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Okay, welcome back. We were talking about, before the break, we are talking about Catholicism and fundamentalism. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, because um, Catholics are so concerned about being labeled fundamentalist, they can, and you see this happen, uh, they can throw out the baby with the bathwater and actually wind up denying beliefs that are part of the Catholic faith because they're so concerned uh, about this label. So uh, let's see, it's uh, Brantley Milligan did this uh, article, and it's actually several years ago, called Where Fundamentalists Are Right, Five Things Catholics Need to Take Seriously Again. So we'll get through as many as we can here in the time remaining. And the first one, it's pretty important. He says it's the authority of the literal sense of Scripture. Listen, Sacred Scripture is the speech of God as it is put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. That is directly from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is quoting from Vatican Council II, which is alluding to the Summa Theologia of St. Thomas Aquinas. Okay, in common with our fundamentalist brothers and sisters, the Catholic Church teaches, again, quoting from the Catechism, God is the author of sacred Scripture. We believe that uh, the scripture is inspired, inerrant, whole and entire with all their parts, the books of the Bible. And therefore, the inspired books teach the truth. Okay, so there it is. That, that, you know, and, but people say, well, you know, you might be asking yourself, don't fundamentalists take the Bible too literally? And yes, we shouldn't read in a literalistic way. Obviously, we, we disagree with our fundamentalist brethren on any number of uh, interpretations of Scripture. I was talking about this last week, about arguing about the real presence, arguing about John 6 with a Baptist fellow, and we both agreed on what the Bible said, but we had very different, very divergent ideas about what it meant, okay? And so it is, you know, we're disagreeing about genre or historical context or theological meanings and so forth. But um, we do agree that the Bible must be taken literally. Yes, of course, we recognize the spiritual sense of Scripture. 
and we even, you know, subdivide it into the allegorical and the moral and the anagogical, these things that go beyond the literal meaning. But as the Catechism makes clear, and again, quoting Thomas Aquinas, all other senses of Scripture must be based on the literal. And it's important to realize that there is no spiritual uh, uh, interpretation of Scripture that can contradict the literal sense. Okay, everything has to flow from what the words actually say. Uh, number two, and this is a huge one, and that's the reality, uh, reality, the reality of sin and hell and judgment and repentance and God's wrath and demons, <laughs> eternal damnation. Okay, these things are they were deemed at some point too negative. They were actually these topics were actually removed purposely from the readings and the prayers uh, of the Novus Ordo Missae. One of the quotes that it sticks with me, uh, it's in, and you'll find it in my book, uh, Confessions of a Traditional Catholic. One of the architects of the new Mass said in an interview with L'Osservatore Romano that there should be, that no one should have any cause to feel uncomfortable at Mass, which, you know, makes you raise an eyebrow. It's like, well, I know that Jesus came to comfort the afflicted, but I also he's also afflicting the comfortable, you know. It also, uh, they also said... Um, Remove the, they had to remove, and let me put this in context. This, I think it was, well, I'm not sure. I can't remember who it was. It was Bunini or one of the, uh, his uh, members of Concilium that was working out the new liturgy. And they said that they were taking as their lodestone, okay, as their guiding principle that they were going to remove from the prayers and readings anything that might represent the shadow of a stumbling block to our separated brethren, right? the Protestants. And it's funny because <laughs> they were trying to be ecumenical. They were trying to have a, a, a liturgy that would be amenable to the Protestants. Unfortunately, they were trying to pr- please the wrong ones. <laughs> <You know? laughs> they they lean towards the literal, uh, uh, Pro- or the, the liberal Protestants who were causing the trouble in the first place. You know, and the thing is that our fundamentalist friends take a lot of heat for preaching about the reality of sin and its serious consequences for souls. And I think Catholics, sometimes they find themselves wanting to reassure other people that they don't believe that. You know, I don't believe that scary stuff. But we're wrong to do that. Even, you know, you see even uh, people with, uh, you know, men with a pectoral cross saying that sort of thing on television. The fact is that fundamentalists are right. Without Christ, we are dead in sin. We are by nature the children of wrath, as St. Paul says in Ephesians. The first message of Christ's own ministry, first words out of his mouth are repent and believe in the gospel. On Pentecost, St. Peter preached thousands of conversions. And what did he say? He said, save yourselves from this crooked generation. You know, and if you're Catholic and that sounds strange or negative or too harsh to you, that is actually an indictment of modern Catholic preaching and catechesis and liturgy. You know, um, because, you know, and I've spoken before, about certain Catholic prelates teaching that hell is empty, or that we can have good hope that there are no that no one goes there. And I don't understand how they get that idea from divine revelation, because Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else in the New Testament. He talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. And if we're supposed to follow the example of Jesus, why is it suddenly off limits? Now, I'm not advocating that you, you know, get a, a, a sign and a, and a placard and go down, you know, um, in public, turn or burn, Right, you don't have to become a crazy person, 
uh, warning people about sin and judgment and repentance and God's wrath and demons and eternal damnation and hell. But you do need to believe, and Catholic priests need to preach, and bishops need to teach about sin and judgment and repentance and God's wrath and demons and eternal damnation and hell. Because to deny these things is to deny reality. And speaking of reality, uh, the third thing on Mr. Milligan's list is the absolute unicity of Jesus for salvation. Unicity is a strange word. What does it mean? It means unique. It means unequaled or unparalleled. Uh, The point is that Jesus is the one way, the only way to God. Okay? Not a way, not uh, as one bishop in Los Angeles would have it, the preferred way, not the best way, the only way. No exceptions. Now, am I saying that only Catholics go to heaven? No, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that no one goes to heaven except by the graces won by Jesus Christ on the Holy Cross, period. Now, is that narrow-minded? Is that fanatical? Is it fundamentalist? Well, all I can tell you, it is the express teaching of Jesus Christ himself and the Catholic Church. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And this from the Acts chapter 4, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, if there's any uh, doubt uh, about the church's stance regarding these, um, this issue, that last verse from Acts actually appears at the very top of the first page of the prologue of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So I think that we can all agree this is something that the church teaches. And then uh, number four is the future second coming of Christ. Obviously, we don't believe, like the, the, the Left Behind books, you know, nobody knows the day or the hour. Uh, we don't think that there's going to be a rapture where all the good Christians are whipped up to heaven and, and don't have to survive the, the trials and tribulations. Um, you know, but we, but we have to remember, even while we reject those things, what do we say in the, Apollo, or the Nicene Creed at Mass on Sundays? that Jesus will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. You know, God's triumph over the revolt of evil. Listen to this. Talking about the rapture, this is from the Catechism. And it's following the Scripture. It says, Before Christ's second coming, the church must pass through a final trial that will shake the faith of many believers. And God's triumph over the revolt of evil will take the form of the last judgment after the final cosmic upheaval of this passing world. Right? And that's no nonsense. And then there's the the last thing that uh, Mr. Milligan says that Catholics need to take seriously again is a willingness to be fools for Christ. Sometimes our fundamentalist friends are scorned and made fun of for beliefs that Catholics, traditional Catholics at least, believe in, and all Catholics should believe in. Um, Sometimes they're criticized for things that we would agree with the critics on. But either way, one thing is clear— There are many fundamentalists out there that are not ashamed to stand for what they sincerely believe God has revealed, even if it means looking foolish in front of others. 
and oh, if Catholics would have such faith. We believe that our faith is revealed by God and faithfully preserved in the Church by the Holy Spirit. But do we take that seriously or not? You know, or are, we, are we worried that non-Christians are going to think we're stupid? St. Bernard of Clairvaux, can't make it through a show without quoting Bernard, uh, he said that there are three secrets to holiness. Humility, humility, and humility. And if we're worried, if we're more worried about looking silly in front of the world than we are about being faithful to Christ, how smart are we really? And then he he gives us here St. Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Where is the one who is wise? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. I'll give the last word to Mr. Mulligan. He says, With confidence in God's word, let us Catholics go out to all the world and preach the gospel. Amen to that. All right, folks. Terrific having been with you. So uh, grateful that you are listening, and we are so thankful for your support, your prayers, your donations. Don't hesitate to visit vmpr.org. Hit the donate button. There's lots and lots of ways to do it. You can learn all about it. Also, next week, I will be back with more No-Nonsense Catholic, and we're going to be having a segment uh, on Will the Real Vatican II Please Stand Up? This time, some quotes that might surprise you and will definitely explode the spirit of Vatican II. So you're going to want to be with us for that. Appreciate it. Also, the 12th of this month coming up, we have our next virtual video conference live on YouTube, the classic conference, Ultimate Challenge, also a brand new talk from Jesse Romero about the importance of apologetics, and the whole thing is going to be hosted live by Mr. Terry Barber. So you can go to vmpr.org and pre-register. It's free uh, on the day. Until then, may God richly bless you and your family. In the 1990s, I lived and worked in Hollywood. But when my wife Betty's mom took ill, we relocated to Orange County. And it was during this time in our lives that I converted to Catholicism. Once my eyes were open to the truth, I couldn't learn enough about the faith. But I had less free time than ever, especially with a long commute. That's when I discovered the real value of Catholic audio. Listening to cassette tapes transformed my daily commute into a miniature retreat. And that's the beauty of Virgin Most Powerful Radio today. Since the podcasts are archived, you can listen anytime on our smartphone app. I know how listening to Catholic audio can bring you closer to Christ and His Church, so I encourage you to visit the App Store or go to vmpr.org and download the app today. It just might change your life. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, sharing the gospel with clarity and charity.